six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard. Good afternoon and welcome to this, the Thursday edition of a public affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. And this is a pre-recorded edition, something we do on occasion. So we won't be taking any phone calls this hour, just to be forewarned listeners. The United Auto Workers on strike since September 15th against the big three automotive manufacturers, General Motors, Ford, and Solantis, the parent of Jeep, Ram, and Chrysler, announced on October 30th that it had reached a tentative agreement with GM, the final corporate holdout to a contract settlement with the union. The settlement, yet to be ratified by the union's rank and file, brought to a close what various observers are already viewing as a historic victory for organized labor and perhaps an energizing new dawn in a key sector of the economy and the labor movement as a whole. With us today to offer his assessments of the strike and what it might mean more widely and more widely portend is journalist Dan Kaufman. Known to many Wart listeners for the 2018 title, The Fall of Wisconsin, A Conservative Conquest of a Progressive Bastion, Dan is the author of the New Yorker magazine article, Will the UAW Strike Turn the Rust Belt Green? Subtitled, The Historic Walkout Against the Big Three Automakers Could Shape the Trajectory of One of America's Most Politically Salient Regions, the piece initially appeared two days before the union's tentative GM agreement to the UAW's contract proposal. Welcome, Dan. It's good to have you back at WRT. It's great to be back, Alan. Thank you for having me. Dan Kaufman, on September 14th, the UAW's new president, Sean Fain, called the first simultaneous strike against the big three companies in the union's history. I'm wondering who might start with the reasons for the strike. What were the primary issues that compelled the union's rank and file to strike, to utilize that historic powerful weapon at their, uh, the withholding of their labor? Well, I think it largely goes back to concessions that the UAW made, was forced to make in the aftermath of the 2007-2008 um, um, financial crash. Um, in which the government bailed out General Motors and Chrysler, and Ford also received uh, low-interest government loans. Um, and the the union was forced to accept a lot of very steep concessions, including most significantly the introduction of a two-tiered system, wage system, which is sort of antithetical to the spirit of unionism, in which um, new hires after 2007 would be paid uh, roughly half of what the workers on the assembly line were making doing the same job. Also traditional pensions were eliminated. And, um, but and at the same time, after 2013, the government uh, had sold its last stakes through the troubled asset relief program in these companies and uh, restrictions on executive compensation were lifted and the companies were engaging in massive stock buybacks and had been tremendously profitable. Uh, CEO pay went up about 40%. Um, and I think there was this incredible disparity that had opened up. You also had a new leader, uh, Sean Fain, who had been elected in the aftermath of a scandal in the UAW uh, in, that was 
unveiled through a federal probe um, several years ago. And that scandal forced a new electoral process um, in electing the UAW leadership. Instead of voting by delegate, it would be a direct election by members. And Fain, who kind of ran uh, as a somewhat militant reformer, um, very much admires the UAW's legendary president, Walter Ruther, um, narrowly won this election uh, by about uh, several hundred votes. And it was pretty clear to a lot of people that followed the union that a strike would be imminent as the contract expired um, because for, for all of those reasons, I think new leadership and um, the grievances that had been rooted and grown increasingly extreme in the wake of record profits by the companies. And you still had in the plant that I was at, mostly in Toledo, a Jeep plant, you know, a third of the workforce is still making less than uh, $16 an hour for an assembly line job that that will wreck your body um, very quickly. Um, so those things were really, frustration was really mounted. And I think Fain channeled this um, into a wider vision uh, that he has in which the UAW would resume its role as a kind of major force in American politics. Um, you probably remember that Ruther was a very powerful figure, um, not just for the UAW, but in the country as a whole. He was one of the staunchest allies of the civil rights movement, also was an early and strong supporter of the environmental movement and many social causes. Um, and I think, uh, you know, Fain, uh, from my interactions with him, would very much like to, um, to restore the union to this um, wider role that Ruther envisioned. And it had become very narrowly focused on um, simply preserving whatever they could for their members of, of that sort of golden era. So I think those are some of the backstory of why the strike happened now and why, um, you know, in, in some ways also why they were so successful given the disparities that had emerged and the context of the record profits by the companies. I want to continue with that backstory. In actuality, some history is in order to situate the recent state of affairs in automotive. Take us back to even before the, the uh, cri financial crisis of 2007-8. Take us back to the North American Free Trade Agreement inaugurated in 1994. What, what did it come to mean for workers in vehicle and related parts manufacturing? Well, it was a huge deal. And I think, and I focus on it a lot in the piece. Um, and it also, both NAFTA in and of itself, very much decimated manufacturing. And a lot of this manufacturing is concentrated in what's become known as the Rust Belt, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania. Um, these were disproportionately unionized jobs. Uh, we had relatively good wages and benefits. Um, NAFTA also opened, it basically opened up uh, Mexico to uh, capital flight. And they could both move, um, a lot of parts manufacturing was moved down there. Uh, also um, assembly manufacturing of entire vehicles, but um, it became also a cudgel for just winning concessions, even just by threatening um, to relocate. It could extract uh, steep labor concessions from uh, the unions. Um, and it became this important, and it, it also opened up a powerful fissure in the Democratic Party that I think is still being played out today 
you see Trump constantly campaigning, and I saw him in outside Detroit. Um, NAFTA is a constant refrain, um, and it has been since he first emerged on the national political scene. And in many ways, I think it contributed to his narrow victory over Hillary Clinton, who was a longtime champion of these agreements in 2016. Trump renegotiated the treaty. It's called the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement now, but it hasn't, you know, a lot of people refer to it as NAFTA 2.0. And in my experience, it's um, reforms. The people that I've spoken to, it's re reforms are mild at best. Um, it did make some improvements in Mexican labor standards, but uh, there were no environmental standards imposed. And um, it was not enough to dissuade, for example, one of the companies, uh, Stellantis had a plant in Belvedere, Illinois, that is relocating to um, its production reportedly of Jeep Cherokees to Toluca, Mexico. So it was a, it was a low wage option. Mexico did not have and still struggles with having independent trade unions. So wages for auto workers there are approximately $3 an hour. They were just raised to $3.20 by GM compared to $32 an hour for um, a regular assembly line worker in the, in North America with, you know, healthcare and benefits and so on. So there's a huge disparity. It's an incredible labor savings for the corporations and they've exploited that. Then NAFTA also led to a much more consequential in terms of actual jobs law, the um, granting China permanent uh, most favored nation status, which contributed to its being accepted to the World Trade Organization. And the economists that I've spoken to suggest that between these two agreements, you know, they've lost, you know, roughly 5 million manufacturing jobs. Um, many of them, I mean, 5 million jobs, net jobs, and many of the manufacturing, many of them, a disproportionate number of them unionized. And a lot of these losses were in the Rust Belt. And I think that has contributed to the appeal as well. There's been an economic fallout and also political fallout. And you have the appeal of a kind of right-wing populism that emerged out of this. And you have people, not just Trump, but people like J.D. Vance and Josh Hawley, a senator, uh, Hawley's a senator from Missouri, Vance is from Ohio. You know, they're appearing on the picket line now and they, they've made noises about China in a kind of economic nationalist framework rather than, um, you know, trying to um, elevate, say, the standards of Mexican workers or something. But um, so, you know, I think these... NAFTA is really important to this fallout. Um, and that's why I focus on it in the piece. And the agreement's turning 30, and it still has an ongoing corrosive effect and a downward pressure on wages in the United States. Um, and you can see that one of the workers I followed had been working in Illinois, and her plant got shut down, as I mentioned just recently. At Masterlock in Milwaukee, um, the last jobs are going there, um, also supposedly going to Mexico where the previous jobs have gone. And Masterlock was kind of a nexus for presidential politics even. Barack Obama went there, made a big proclamation that they were gonna restore these jobs. And it's really the last bastion of manufacturing in a section of Milwaukee, a four by 20 block area that, that once boasted of like 20,000 well-paying jobs. So I think 
you know, it's incredibly important to our political moment, you know, these free trade agreements. You're listening to Dan Kaufman, author of the recent New Yorker magazine article, Will the UAW Strike Turn the Rust Belt Green? We're doing, this is a pre-recorded program, so we won't be opening the phone lines for you, our regular callers, so be informed. Dan, I, you know, looking, looking through your article, I was just astounded that, that in the, pa the past 20 years, you cite the fact that the big three alone closed more than 60 U.S. plants. It's, it's just really astounding. Talk a little bit more about the, uh, uh, you know, the workers in these plants took it on the year if, if their jobs remained. Um, but you mentioned in passing earlier on uh, how the corporations made out. Talk about Mary Barra, for instance, the CEO of GM and what she pulls down. She makes, last year she made approximately $29 million as a total compensation package. And she, she was um, somebody that came up, you know, in 2019, I spent a couple of months in Youngstown, Ohio, documenting the closing of uh, the GM, uh, the Lordstown plant, um, a GM plant that was making Chevy Cruises. And she was really, um, there was a really a lot of anger towards her then. So I, I was, um, you know, she was, she was definitely on my radar earlier. And actually, interestingly enough, GM, which used to be the largest of the big three in terms of its North American footprint, now has the fewest number of UAW members. Ford has the largest. Um, and they, they, they definitely have probably increased their production in Mexico and outsourced more of their production than any of the other uh, three companies. But um, it's, it's quite remarkable um, the kinds of compensation they're getting, and especially in light of these concessions that were forced on the company. And I think it was a kind of perfect moment in a sense for the UAW, both the combination of the new leadership, the, the, the record profits that they were making, these companies, and the, the pent-up anger that I felt on the picket lines in Michigan and Ohio. Um, and this anger had a new channel. There, there was really an incredible adulation for Sean Fain, the new um, president. Even some people that I spoke to that also support Trump um, very much admired him and respected him. And they were really looking for somebody. Um, the UAW, as I mentioned, had these scandals and, and a lot of people felt that like they, they were no longer, they hadn't been proud of the union for a long time. And they'd also felt that they had several contracts that were quite bad for them. They basically gained no ground. And they felt that um, in some ways the corruption scandals were related to these bad contracts. Essentially, um, there was different iterations of this, but some the, the union had built up over time something called the joint um, training centers. And it was sort of a company management type of collaboration that was being tried. And in the beginning of it, it might have been a, a, you know, a good idea. But over time, it, to, to Fain and others, it began to seem like a corrupting influence. Um, and in fact, part of this corruption scandal involved Chrysler executives paying, bribing UAW officials out with credit cards um, from one of the joint finance, uh, joint training centers 
in Detroit. So it became emblematic of this sort of what Fain calls company unionism and very a very pliant um, leadership in his view that was giving away um, too much before even even fighting. Um, and so this was the first strike, for example, for in for Ford in decades. And um, at the G plan I was at, the president of the union has been there since 1972, and it was his first strike. But again, it was uh, this anger was deeply rooted, and and there was such an excitement around it. And I think you also touched on it. It's the wider context of the United States, and and you know, there's a wonderful chart by the Economic Policy Institute that shows the correlation of income inequality and the decline in union membership. It correlates almost perfectly, and I think you're seeing this this incredible rise of inequality in the United States was kind of the backdrop. And, you know, the UAW historically had always been at the forefront, not just of, you know, fighting for its own members, but as I mentioned, Walter Ruther had this broader vision that the union should fight for the public at large. And there's a lot of evidence to show that raising, you know, unions raise wages for um, people in the wider community as a whole. And you can see that already, Toyota, which is a non-union company has already agreed to a 9% raise just since the, um, since the agreements with the UAW. So it's having an effect. And I think um, there's a lot of energy and dynamism behind uh, this new leadership and, and the, the membership. So. Dan Kaufman, numbers of observers, yourself included, have commented on the strikes deployment of what's being described as a new tactic, the stand-up strike. How did this, what is the stand-up strike? How did it work? Well, basically they decided to strike, be, start the strike with just one plant from each of the big three at one time. And it was sort of a tactic to increase flexibility and, and, and uh, stretch their strike fund so that not everybody was walking out at once. And it also kept the companies off guard. So for example, in one negotiation with Ford, uh, Fain was upset with that Ford didn't have a counter offer. And minutes after the bargaining session began, he called out one of their most profitable companies literally during the bargaining session to, to walk out. So it, it allowed them greater flexibility. It was a conscious homage to the UAW's, the sit down strikes. They, they wanted to invent a new t- of the 30s in which uh, were kind of first pioneered in Flint where workers would literally occupy the plants, preventing strike breakers and management from from using the machinery. Um, This was different, but it it was sort of um, a kind of rolling process in which different plants would be called out. By the end of the strike, there were more than 45,000 workers out across 22 states. But it started as just one in each of the big three. And then he would ratchet up, the union would ratchet up pressure and by the end, right before the deal with Ford, they called out on strike Ford's most profitable plant, a uh, truck truck plant in Kentucky, and they got some final concessions. Um, and that, you know, that's part of also a process called pattern bargaining, which Ruther kind of pioneered, Ruther and the UAW, in which they would make an agreement with one company and use that as a model to then uh, get basically similar terms to the other companies. And that's what happened. Ford historically has always been 
the friendliest of the three to the union. And they came out with a contract that had 25% um, raises, a reinstatement of the cost of living adjustment, um, and a lot of things, including the right to strike over plant closures, which is a first uh, for the union. So it was um, widely regarded by everybody, both you know, pro-labor observers and, and uh, others that are more hostile, uh, as a major victory for the UAW, so. You know, you know, I have to go back a second because you took took me back actually by saying that historically Ford Motor Company has been <laughs> friendly to the UAW. <laughs> well, in recent after decades, all, not, after, not yeah. in the 40s. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, no, I yeah. mean, Henry Ford was Henry Ford. And yeah. uh, uh, Walter yeah, Ruther yeah. himself uh, got beaten up and thrown down a flight That's of steps right. at one That's point right. and, yeah. and so on. Again, you're listening to Dan Kaufman. We're talking about uh, the recently settled and still percolating in actuality uh, UAW uh, strike and its aftermath. The tentative GM contract coming on the heels of the agreement with Ford and Stellantis, if approved by the UAW membership, would bring high, higher wages um, than the workers had received in decades. What brought GM negotiators around? Well, I think the deal with the other two companies, because uh, one of the things that Fain did was to ask that um, Ford, who settled first, those workers return to work right away, even before the contract is ratified. And that increases pressure on the other two companies, because if Ford is out there building and selling cars, it will grab up a larger market share while the other two are on strike. So I think, um, you know, it was part of that tactic and there was just really nowhere else for them to go. They couldn't see their two competitors, major competitors, marriage American competitors, um, selling cars before them. That would be a, a huge financial loss. And the companies were hurting, as were the workers. I mean, it wasn't an easy strike. The, one of the, the sort of downsides of the stand-up strike was that plants that weren't officially on strike, that were maybe supplying the plants that were, were, were those workers were laid off and they were not eligible for strike pay. They could only file for unemployment. So, you know, there were, th you know, several thousand workers that were inadvertently laid off that were not officially on strike. But, um, but you know, I think the anger was deep enough and the leadership was very focused on winning a historic contract. Also, Fain is very um, focused on trying to organize non-union plants. And in fact, recently he said, you know, when we return in 2028, you know, we won't be negotiating with the big three. It'll be with the big five or big six. And he's focused on Toyota, Nissan and Tesla, you know, where wages are less. And, you know, he's really trying a very activist push, a kind of labor militancy that you haven't seen. And it's, it's, you know, there's some exceptions, but, but, especially at such a major union you haven't seen in some decades. Let's stick, let's stay with Sean Fain. Uh, that is, I was taken aback really, uh, listen, watching him in the speech to the membership just recently, a few days ago, uh, talking in unabashed class terms, a distinct language of the need for working class militancy and power rather than a language of preserving or restoring something called the middle class. What can you tell us further about Sean Fain? Uh, you said you observed him, uh, you referenced him several times already 
What have you observed that makes him distinct? Well, um, I had a couple of interviews with him, and he, uh, uh, you know, there was a lot of adulation for him. I think he was deeply shaped by the experience of his grandparents, who grew up in uh, kind of destitute poverty during the Great Depression. They were migrants from the South, Tennessee and Kentucky. They all landed jobs at the plants in Kokomo, Indiana, um, which is where he first worked as an electrician for Chrysler. Um, and I think that experience um, somehow left him with a sort of militancy. Um, and he was also, he told me at various times, he had been somewhat, like a lot of members, had been ashamed of the direction the union was going. They, he felt like it was too conciliatory. Um, and, uh, you know, he himself had been in one of these joint programs. Um, and I think he saw, it was there that he kind of saw what he felt was a corrupting influence on a kind of natural sort of adversarial relationship that the union should have with the workers in order to better serve its membership. And I think um, he surrounded himself with some interesting advisors. Um, one of them is Chris Brooks, who was, uh, and Jonah Furman is another. And they're, um, they were both had written for Labor Notes, a very radical uh, publication out of Detroit, started by Jane Slaughter in the 70s. Um, that's really um, very militant. And, and, and actually it's funny, Chris Brooks wrote like a, a very detailed investigative piece uh, for In These Times about the UAW's corruption in 2020. And I think, so it was interesting, he's bringing into his inner circle people that were deeply critical of the union. And I think he's trying to, he's a big admirer of Walter Ruther, very deeply, um, you know, one of his heroes for sure. Um, and he is trying, I think he's um, also sort of conscious of the uh, larger political implications of what's happened over the past few decades, which, you know, again, I think the incursion and the rise of right-wing populism is directly related to, you know, the rise of sort of neoliberal economics, especially with free trade agreements. Um, there's a kind of, um, in Sean Fain's view, a sort of misplaced anger that is being directed, you know, uh, by people like Trump towards Mexican immigrants or so on and so forth. And he speaks out, he denounces that um, sort of xenophobia very um, vehemently, but he also understands where some of this anger and the sense of betrayal of his members have and why somebody like Trump might appeal to them. Um, you know, somebody that goes around the Rust Belt promising to reopen factories. I remember it, when I was in Youngstown, Trump famously went there and said at a speech, you know, everybody could remember it. Um, you know, uh, we're going to reopen all these factories, don't sell your house, and so on and so forth. And then two years later, this, the last kind of bastion of large-scale manufacturing, this GM plant, closed down. And I was with somebody who had lived there for 41 years when the moving trucks came to his house. And he, he was forced to move to Kentucky so his wife could keep her pension with GM. But I think there's a dynamic that's happening that Fain and others like Bernie Sanders have been aware of in which um, the, the reorientation of the Democratic Party towards 
a kind of professional class and so on has um, alienated its traditional base going back to the Roosevelt era of working class union sort of base. And you, you saw it in Wisconsin. I mean, everybody remembers that um, the 2011, the greatest, the, the biggest labor uprising in decades. And, you know, President Obama didn't come, although he made a promise in the campaign in 2007 that he was going to, if collective bargaining rights were ever under threat, he would join the picket line. And I think that typified a distancing that has changed to a degree um, with President Biden. And, uh, you know, he, he you know, uh, went to the picket line. That was a first for any president. But I think there's still some apprehension about where the party is at. And I think Fain is looking at things not from a partisan political lens, but in a way acknowledging this larger political context and understanding that um, there has been this incredible migration of wealth towards the upper classes over the recent decades. And largely that's because of the fall of the labor movement, in my opinion. And I think, you know, a lot of people's opinion. You know, I'd like to turn our attention uh, as you often do in your writing, to the individual human face of the strike, the personal stories of working class folk and what living and working on and off the assembly line in heavy industry has meant for those who work there, right? Talk a little bit, tell our listeners about Jennifer Fultz, her story. Jennifer is an amazing, remarkable woman. Her, she was somebody that, um, she had to move to Toledo um, to transfer uh, because her plant in Belvedere, Illinois, outside Rockford was closing. Um, and so she had to uproot herself um, with her kids, her partner, her mom. And uh, she left one night on Halloween evening uh, after going trick-or-treating with her kids. She got packed up her car and drove to Toledo with her mom because she had to work at the assembly line the next day. You know, if your plant closes down, you can get a transfer rights based on seniority to at another plant. And I saw this happen in Lordstown when hundreds of people scattered all over to try to preserve their wages and benefits. And Jennifer was one of those kind of casualties, you could say, of these um, companies. And she was very driven by, she's been very animated by the strike and the politics of the strike. She's always at the hall volunteering to take food down. Um, at the same time, she's struggled a lot. Her body, as she told me, she's 33 years old and my body's broken down already. She has constant pain in her shoulder. She can barely lift her child, her daughter, who's very light. Um, and she's sort of the human face of deindustrialization and the these kinds of, you know and again the the product in Belvedere the Jeep Cherokee is supposedly moving to Mexico where workers will be paid a, a, a tiny fraction of what she was making but she felt she had to move because there were no good jobs left she was told me she was working three fast food jobs simultaneously but she still could not afford to move out of her mother's house and then she lucked into this job at Stellantis, which at the time was Chrysler. And um, it changed her life. She was able to, and she eventually bought a small house. And that was like the most meaningful thing to her. 
And just as she like, like within a year or so later, she was forced to sell it, you know, which added to the heartbreak. Um, and I think she's a really, um, you know, remarkable person. Her mother had cancer too, and she was caring for her. Um, and she's made this transition and I think has been incredibly, she actually went to Biden's event at, she was invited by, um, you know, to go to see him at the picket line in Michigan. So, yeah, that brings us, of course, right to my next question. When when Joe Biden uh, visited the picket line in Michigan in September, Fultz met him there. Uh, you quote her as saying, we fist bumped. Uh, and I told him, please keep jobs in America, Mr. Biden. And Biden's response was, that is why we need EVs, electric vehicles. Talk about that. Talk a, a bit about where the conversion of electric vehicle production currently stands. That is how it enters into the story uh, we're exploring. Well, it's a major fault line right now because there's, as you know, there's hundreds of billions of dollars being slated by the federal government to make this green transition through the Inflation Reduction Act and other legislation. What the union fears is that these jobs will become a low benefit, low wage carve out. And in fact, this at this plant in Lordstown, there's a new battery plant that I focus on in which, you know, workers were being paid $16 and 50 cents an hour. And actually, uh, initially, um, it's recently gone up and, um, it's, uh, you know, it's much more dangerous than a traditional assembly plant. One of the, one of the UAW officials described it to me as like a chemical factory and a worker has been killed there already. And there's been, uh, people that have been hospitalized. There's been 22 people just in the first five months of 2023 that have reported violations to OSHA, injuries to OSHA, which is like a 50% higher incidence rate than in traditional plants. So I think um, that was a major issue with the strike. And that was one thing that they have won somewhat on. In GM, at least, um, the national agreement will include battery plants, um, including this plant at Ultium. So now those workers will be official GM employees with the same wages and benefits of other GM employees. And I think there was a desire and a consciousness on the part of the union that they needed to make the contract good enough to attract people again to the UAW, both non-union and, and these emerging battery plants, which are being built all over the US. There's a lot of incentives in these bills for them to be built in American plants. But the union was frustrated with Biden that not more was being done to pressure the companies to make sure that they were union labor. So that's a major tension point. The union has not yet endorsed Biden, um, although there was a friendly appearance and Fain was praised him for coming to the picket line. But they're very, very nervous about what this transition will look like for them. And there's there was some precedents that are now being somewhat reversed in these new contracts in which these new plants did seem like this carve out. There would be a low wage job, not on the same scale as a normal production job. And that is where the industry is going, electric vehicles. So. Dan Kaufman, talk about um, maybe you can point to some of the highlights of the contract one from the big three. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, well, certainly the raises, um, 
you know, with, with by the end of the contract, um, production workers will be making more than $40 an hour. Um, and the, it's the end of the wage, at least in terms of wages, there will be no more tiering. Um, that was a huge deal. Um, and I think one of two other important points were the right to strike over plant closures, um, which is a first for the UAW. So in other words, if there is a plant that's shutting down, idling, going, they could strike over that. Um, and another one is investments from the companies. This plant in Belvedere that Jennifer Foltz left, she um, is now going to be reopened as a parts distribution center and probably a battery plant as well. So there was a lot of commitments from the companies to reshore American manufacturing jobs. And, um, but I think overall it was, there was just a remarkable, um, you know, wage and the end of the tiering, you know, was just such a huge um, gain. The one area where they didn't um, restore what had been lost was in terms of the pensions. There's still um, the newer hires, those hired after 2007 will still receive a 401k. So. Sean Fain, in, in his address to the, to the UAW membership this past week, noted that the fight for the contract was more than a fight against the big three. He described it as a bare knuckled fight between the working class and corporate greed. Talk about that. That is this we've touched on it and I, I think it's so phenomenal that I'm going to come, I have to come back to it. Fain went on to say that if the next rounds are to be won, then the working class has to get back into fighting shape. The need for workers everywhere uh, to organize on the job, he pointed to, um, that union organized workers everywhere had to rediscover the power of the strike. That's a, uh, and then he goes on, he calls, you know, that speech, he calls for, um, well, the, the conscious selection of an expiration date of April 30th, 2028, uh, in the con tentative contract with GM. Why was that important? He's calling on people to work toward that date. Well, I think what he's trying to do, and it's something that's been missing from American political life for a long time, is raise the class consciousness in our country. Um, that is not something that you've seen with maybe the exception uh, of the Sanders campaign in some instances, but it's really, um, as you as you know, it's very, it's novel um, and it's not, um, it's not based on identity lines, it's really around class lines and he's emphasizes that again and again. And of course, some of his detractors Jim Cramer, an analyst at CNNBC, essentially accused him of being a Trotskyite. Um, and, uh, but, you know, as I mentioned, he is, um, I think he sees himself, you know, the UAW was a very important institution in American, what we, whatever we have of a social democratic kind of fabric, a lot of it, you know, was um, driven by the UAW. I mean, they were really at the forefront also in terms of the civil rights movement, as I mentioned, um, and, and other social movements. Um, it was a much wider fight. And I think Ruther, who was a socialist himself growing up, although he later turned away from it, um, 
But, uh, you know, I think that militancy is forgotten. You know, you had a long period of the Red Scare, which really um, kind of rooted out a lot of the more radical organizers within the American labor movement. Um, and it changed the union movement into one that was more focused more narrowly on sort of more concrete gains and, and less around larger questions of class consciousness and, and so on. But I think that history is there. And, and Sean Fain is, I think, very aware of that history, you know, prior to the Red Scare and, and some of the, you know, he always invokes the sit down strikes in the, uh, in the video announcing the stand, the stand up strike, you know, there was images of Flint in the thirties and so on. And it's a very um, conscious, they're very proud, not just him, but a lot of people in Toledo. I visited a, a local president who had a replica of the number of days of the Flint sit down struck etch, etched on a transmission. He made his plant makes transmission. And, um, and I, this, this history is, is very proud and, and Fain is conscious, constantly invoking it on the picket lines and elsewhere, reminding them. When I saw him, I saw him at Solidarity House, the UAW headquarters, and also on the picket lines in Ohio. He would often mention Ruther, the arsenal of democracy, how the Union created the armaments to win the Second World War, and so on and so forth. And he's very much about restoring this this sort of militant tradition. You know that uh, that date of uh, April thirtieth, twenty twenty-eight, as the tentative. Uh, contract and the end of the contract with GM that's the day that's the day before May Day the International Workers Day he's talking about possibly a, a strike on May Day of 2028 yeah that would be really remarkable wouldn't it um, yeah I mean he's he's aware of this labor history in in a really um, in a really um, you know deep way and and as I mentioned some of his closest advisors are quite militant. Um, there's a very interesting Wall Street Journal piece about them, his inner circle, and they were, uh, you know, very instrumental in, in advising him uh, around both the strategy and, and sort of, they want to push, you know, use the UAW as a kind of, you know, um, vanguard or something of, of, a revival of American labor movement. Actually, when I was on the picket line with, when I was watching him, Sarah Nelson, who's also quite a, a militant labor leader, she runs, she's the head of the flight attendants union. She was there with him. And there's, there's a kind of emerging, I think, you know, it's paradoxical because the American labor movement, it's only now 6% of private sector employees are, are union members. So it's, it's, it's strange, but at the same time, unions have not enjoyed this much public support in decades, you know? And I think there's a kind of paradox there. And I think there's a growing awareness of the kinds of the equalizing nature that unions provided for a long time. We're getting close to the end of the hour, Dan Kaufman. In closing, what would you point to as the most significant gain won by the UAW? Uh, maybe the message perhaps that it has sent out workers everywhere to or the organized and unorganized i think it was the overall not any one specific thing but it was showing again that the workers could win big 
you know, um, both in terms of getting rid of a very divisive tiered system, which was uh, more than just the difference in wages. It was very corrosive on the shop floor to people. You know, if one person's making twice as much, it's very undermining to solidarity between workers. That was a huge thing. And I think the overall sent a signal that, um, you know, you could, it had been a long time since really almost any union has won that big. I mean, I think, you know, SAG-AFTRA arguably had a, a lot of success, but I think it was this, this overall picture that by um, engaging in this kind of militancy, there could be a kind of, um, you know, real concrete gains, both in the material sense, but also it, it's so, when you go to the union halls, there's such an energy uh, in an activated and an animated um, workforce that, um, you know, and, and I think he's really trying to um, bring that membership and channel that energy into ways, um, you know, that maybe hasn't been because the union for a while had been much more top down. So I think there's, um, it's that too, you know, seeing people excited about their union and the possibilities um, that it could bring. And, you know, they would do things in the community too, you know, and the community was responsive to them. Like in Toledo is a very big union town, probably even more than Detroit. And you saw just the support, like, I mean, the honking and everything. I think it's, it's touched a lot of people because they saw in the auto workers, um, the kind of plight that so many workers, especially those without college degrees, have endured for decades. And they saw that maybe they could be another path forward that's, um, that represents something better for them, you know? And, and again, to see the energy out there, people like Jennifer Foltz or Doris Jones, they're so activated by the strike and just trying to provide food. Doris Jones was a woman that I spent time with wonderful person who was basically making like a hundred breakfasts a day in the union hall for people on the picket line. She was just constantly, um, you know, and I think they really cared too about their, their coworkers that weren't making, that were making half as much. And, and so many of them said to me, I'm really striking for them. You know, they were nearing retirement, but it was for these other people. And that was really interesting to see, you know, and quite moving. No, Dan, we're right down toward the end of the hour. I'm going to ask the, uh, the what I call the crystal ball question that I often give, uh, ask guests. Uh, and that, that is, you have some sense of where this is going? Um, I can't see it as going anywhere but up, given how low it's been. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think um, in terms of the UAW, there's a tremendous energy, tremendous wind at their backs. This was a huge victory for them. And, um, you know, in some sense, Sean Fain has become, you know, the most pivotal figure um, in the business world as well. You know, he's uh, he's offered an alternate model for, and I'm not just him, but the union for labor that's applicable to this time. So anyway, that's what I'll say. Um, we'll see. They're definitely moving on to the South and these other non-union plants. And I think that will be a big challenge, you know, but, um, but we'll see. 
Yeah, listening to Sean Fain, I uh, thought this guy is like Eugene Debs reborn in his in his. Well, he's from Indiana. So. <laughs> yeah, no, Ruther definitely, but uh, harkens back in this long, longer thread of, of U.S. Yeah. labor and working class history uh, mm -hmm. that is has been for too long, uh, too forgotten. Yeah. Dan Kaufman, I want to thank you ever so much for your time today. Uh, you've been listening to Dan Kaufman. Uh, he's the author of the very recent New Yorker magazine article, Will the UAW Strike Turn the Rust Belt Green? I suggest that people find it online, uh, give it a read, because as Dan and I were talking at the, before we went on, went on the air, and that is that I hadn't been paying too much attention to the strike with other things there's going on. There's been a lot on. of other news. I will also encourage people to read it online because there's wonderful photographs by my colleague, Philip Montgomery, who I've reported a lot of stories with, and they really capture some of the visual sense of what we saw. Well, again, Dan Kaufman, by the way, uh, for those folks uh, not aware, Dan Kaufman uh, is a Madison homegrown uh, <laughs> article <laughs> that is, uh, he's a, He's a Madison townie that's uh, going out into the wider world and, uh, and you know, doing some good stuff. So keep track of Dan Kaufman uh, and we'll have you yes, back. Yes, and a proud graduate of Malcolm Shabazz City High. Uh, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, I'm sure, have you back you know, on behalf That would be wonderful, Alan. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. I want to thank Jade, our producer. Uh, I want to thank you, our listeners, for always tuning in to WRT 89.9 FM. I've been your host for the hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, no precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning, afternoon edition. Commandeering airways from unknown positions. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen. Listen and support it.